if you knew there was a formula for a healthy life, would you follow it? I don't know about you, but I I tend to like formulas. I tend to like three steps or five things that you can do to improve your health or to find better success. And I think we're wired that way. It just makes sense to us. But here's the question. If you knew that there were as a formula that you could find, that you could follow, that would lead to uh, mental and physical well-being, would you follow it? I think the answer for all of us should be yes. But one of the questions I always want to ask is, then why aren't we very good at it? Dr. Andrew Huberman, some of you know him, some of you may listen to his podcast. He's a the professor of neurobiology uh, and ophthalmology at the Stanford School of Medicine, which means he's very smart, <laughs> very smart guy. He, he, he says that there's five things that we can do as they've studied the mind, as they've studied the eyes and our neural pathways. There's five things you can do which will lead you to a consistent, healthy, physical and mental well-being. And here's the five. And they're, they're all pretty simple, actually. Sleep, movement, nutrition, sunlight, and relationships. He says with sleep, you need to sleep at least seven hours a day. That with with movement, you need to work out at least 150 minutes a week. With nutrition, we need to eat nutrient-rich foods. Sunlight is really interesting. He talks about sunlight as being five to 10 minutes in the morning of actual sunlight in your eyes, not staring directly at the sun, but outside walking in the the dog. He said, if you have to blink when you're looking at it, something, you probably are too close to it. And so, yeah, don't stare directly at the sun. I think you guys probably learned that in kindergarten, but sometimes we need that reminder. And then he talked about relationships, social connection. He talked about the fact that loneliness is as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And so these five things all seem pretty simple, right? And so we look at these five things and we say, you know, this year, this is something that I can do. These are things that I can really be successful at. But I don't know about you, but when when you see a list like that, it's easy to get excited at first. But as you start to put it into play, you start to realize that maybe certain things start to fall by the wayside. But with any good formula, if you pull out one of the foundational elements, everything else falls apart. For instance, what if I told you that if you remove sleep from these five, everything else really doesn't matter? It doesn't matter how much sunlight you get in your eyes if you're only sleeping four to five hours a night. If you're drinking caffeine too late in the day, if you're looking at your phone too close to bed and too much blue light in your eyes and you don't sleep, you can, you can spend as much time with friends. You can go to the gym all day long. By the end of the day, you will be mentally exhausted and physically not well. You know, that is the reality in life. But I think a lot of us, for some reason, we tend to pick and choose out of the things that are good for us, what we like and what we don't like. And we tend to find ourselves veering down a path that we really probably shouldn't have veered down. And not only does this happen in our health and in our relationships, but it happens in our faith. In the Bible, as we open God's word and we see that the word of God has been revealed to us from Jesus and we hold in our hands God's blueprint for our life, we see Jesus model a lot of things for us. A lot of things that he says that are the healthy pathway, the formula for living a spiritually healthy life. And he talks about things like spending time connecting with God, with our heavenly father. 
Spending time in his word to us to help us understand what it looks like to, to live this life. But spending time with, with God's people. And Jesus modeled all these things for us. And yet, yet as we um, continue in our journeys of faith, we tend to find ourselves in these moments where we feel dry, that we feel lacking. Maybe we feel like faith just isn't working. We wonder, God, why aren't you listening? And I wonder if we looked back at our lives, would we find that we removed a key element from the formula? Now, we know faith's not a formula. Faith is a relationship. But I do think that there are these important practices that we see Jesus bring to us over the course of his ministry that, that help us to learn to follow him, to be his apprentice better. And so we're in a series called Practicing the Way. And we spent the last couple of weeks looking at what it looks like to, to, to build a rhythm and a routine in the way we pray, what it looks like to build a rhythm and a routine in the way we open God's word and meditate on his word. But today, what I want to talk about is something that for many of us might even just feel like, why are we even speaking on this today? Aren't there more important things? But I think as we look, especially at the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12, we're going to see that maybe the most foundational thing when it comes to being spiritually healthy and growing in our faith happens right here on Sunday mornings in the church. If you have your Bibles, grab those. We're going to be in Romans chapter 12 this morning. And what what I want us to see is that over the course of Jesus' ministry, that the Apostle Paul is going to point back to, is this idea that Jesus regularly gathered with God's people. Somebody say gathered. Jesus regularly gathered with God's people. You would see Jesus, he would spend Saturday mornings in the synagogue. The gospel authors tell us that Jesus would regularly go to synagogue. It was his custom where he would open up God's word and, and it would read it or it would be read aloud to him. He would regularly gather with his followers and his disciples in large groups where, where there would be teaching and Jesus would open up uh, their minds to help them to understand the will of God and he would teach them parables and stories to help them to recognize how God was moving in their lives. Jesus would regularly, regularly spend time with his, his closest disciples, the, the, the 12, the three, the bigger group of 120, and teach them what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so the Apostle Paul, looking back on all that God has done for us and all that Jesus did, talks about the foundational relationship that we have with gathering together. Romans the book of Romans itself is an amazing book. If you haven't spent time in this book, make a plan this year to spend time in the book of Romans. You know, Martin Luther said it's the very purest of all the Gospels. It's been said that if all you had was a copy of the book of Romans, you didn't even have any of the Gospels of Jesus, that you could still understand who Jesus was, why he came, and what he did. So the book of Romans is a powerful book. And when Paul writes this book of Romans, he's writing to us a story, or he's writing to us a letter to house churches of Rome. And he's telling them this beautiful reality of what God did for us. He gives everybody the bad news that sin has broken us, separated us from God. But he gives us the good news that Jesus came in the midst of our mess because he loved us. And then we turn to chapter 12. And Paul really kind of changes gears, and he says something really beautiful. He says, based on all of the amazing things that God did for us, based on the fact that Jesus came and rescued us and redeemed us and brought us out of the dirt and the muck and the mire, we should have a response in the way we live our lives too. Notice what Paul says. 
If you have your Bible open, Romans 12, notice what Paul says here. He says that I appeal to you, therefore I urge you, he says, by the mercies of God, by, by God's love, by the mercy that God has given us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Somebody say spiritual worship. So, so Paul says, based on all of this amazing stuff that God has done, based on the fact that you were lost and you've been found, that God has brought people from far places together, I urge you now to come together as the church, to come together as God's people. Notice this. He says, present your body to him as a living sacrifice. I know anybody anybody love like Renaissance movies, Renaissance shows, Renaissance paintings? Like two of you, I'm glad. A couple of you guys are like every movie and every TV show is about that time frame. So you guys are pretty bored sounds like. But back in the, the Renaissance days and even before, kings and queens would be presented with great gifts. Well, the best, as you kind of research history, uh, the kings of England would, uh, and Great Britain would often be given these incredible gifts from other kings. And it turns out the kings of Norway were the best gift givers. Anybody Norwegian? Anybody have any Norwegian blood? If so, you guys probably give great Christmas gifts. These, these Norwegian kings, they would, they would give gifts like polar bears. Like, could you imagine getting a polar bear? Hey, like, what'd you get for your birthday this year? Like a, like a, like a Nintendo Switch? What'd you get? Oh, I got a polar bear. <laughs> nice, right? What are you going to do with it? I don't know, actually. I just kind of let it go, right? <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, the king of Norway, he, he sent these... these um, these falconers out to Iceland and he had them search Iceland over for falcons. And then he would give gifts of falconry to, I think that's what you say it, falconry. So imagine like you, you open up your gift and it's kind of shaking. It's like, you know, Christmas vacation where the gift's moving. It's like meowing, you know, it's like some lime cat food on the side and you open it up and there's a falcon with a sweet bow in his hair, Right. Like, that's a pretty sweet gift. But here was the thing. When the king of Norway presented that gift, he didn't ask for it back. He didn't, he didn't expect to get that gift back. He presented that gift to the king, and it was what to the king. The king could let the falcon go if he wanted. He could let the polar bear go or eat the royal jester or whatever he wanted to do, right? But this is this picture we get that God calls us to present when we, we're giving God a beautiful gift. We're giving God something great, something bigger than we could ever give on our, you know, it, it, from buying something at a store or creating something. We're giving him our lives. No, notice what Paul talks about here when he talks about this gift of our lives. He's talking about us surrendering ourselves over to God. But, but I want you to notice something. What Paul doesn't say, he doesn't say present yourself to God, like go grab your Bible and go sit under a tree somewhere. Or like go huddle up with your little, your little, your little Christian huddle somewhere and, and, and go hide somewhere out in the mountains. He, he specifically talks about this idea of our body. Somebody say bodies. Is that singular or plural? You guys are good. You guys, man, you guys are good. He talks about here this idea of our bodies. This is the picture of corporate, of all of us. He's talking about the church. He's not talking about you and me in our prayer closet, you and me in my backyard in a comfortable place with my feet up in a Bible. He's talking about us. Somebody say us. So if you're from Texas, you say y'all. If you're from uh, Chicago, you say yous. 
And if you're Polish, I had a Polish friend, she used to say Ewans. So he says, present Ewans, y'all, us. I like to say, you guys present yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Notice what he's, he's saying here. He's, he's talking about this idea that when we come together for corporate worship together, right, that something special happens. He says this, that worship takes form when we gather together as the church. Paul is saying that when you come together, sacrificially giving yourself to God, that is where worship takes form. Because this is our spiritual service, our spiritual form of worship. That word worship seems weird to me sometimes. When I hear the word worship, I get, you guys know that scene from Monty Python's where the monks are walking, chanting, and then smashing themselves in the head with a board? If you're under 40, you're like, what? Monty Python's? You guys need to go to YouTube. Seriously, we, we get this idea of this like weird worship, this like weird, these, these like monks or like these, these other forms of religion of people that have this strange form of worship. But that's not, that's not what worship is. I think that's a misconstrued version of worship. Worship is simply the, the idea of giving a deep affection and praise to something. So when we worship God, we're, we're simply giving God praise. We're simply giving God affection from, from a deep place. And we've talked about it before. You can worship anything. Paul talks about earlier in the book of Romans how we as people, because of sin, started worshiping a lot, man-made creatures, nasty stuff, things that were lost and things that don't make any sense. And God gave a lot of people over to that, to, to just this depravity. See, God wants us to, to have a worship towards him and nothing brings him more glory, Paul says here, than when we come and we do it together. Worship can take place anytime and any place, but something special happens when we worship together. And it doesn't have to be in a building, but it, Paul's talking about the bodies, y'all, you and you, you guys, one church, God's people together. You know, there's been a lot said about church attendance over the past decades. And if you've been part of a church or you, you attend, maybe you subscribe to some Christian emails, you get pic- painted a pretty dire picture of church attendance, of people who've left the church and maybe somebody grew up Christian and they walked away from the church or maybe people just aren't interested in faith. What's interesting is those statistics are really, are really negative and they're wrong. I mean, really, people are open. People are, you know, interested, and people are searching. But there has been a decline in church attendance. Here's a graph. It shows church attendance over the last couple of decades, and it just talks about the fact you see the, the, the bar graph on the top. You see uh, the line on the top at weekly attendance has just dropped. People who attend once a month have stayed steady, and the people who don't attend hardly at all has really gone up. And this has asked a lot of church missiologists and scholars, experts, just to wonder, what's going on? You know, know, how come people aren't going to church as often as they used to? Notice this next graph. Barna did a study, and Barna's study found that 77% of people, more than three-quarters of people in America, are, are believe in God or higher power, and three-quarters of people are open to growing spiritually. So you notice that disconnect? You see that? That there may not be as many people attending church every week, but yet people are still open to this idea of growing in their faith. People still pray. People still want to have a relationship with God, but there is a disconnect with church attendance. 
And so you, you, you got to wonder, like, why is that? Why are maybe so few people regularly attending church nowadays, regularly gathering with God's people? And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Some of you might recently have come back to church. And you might look and go, well, you know, I took a couple years off from church because of whatever reason it was. The pastor was boring. He had a bad haircut. Or he had a really good haircut and I just couldn't go. It was too much for me. Right? I don't have time. I don't like the music. The jokes aren't very good, which I get it. I do get that one. Right? The, the lasers give me allergies. Right? The fog machines give me allergies. Right? Like, there's a lot of reasons that you could have an excuse for why you don't want to gather with God's people. But I, I wonder, could the real reason be that people just think they can live out their faith on their own and they don't really see the value and going to church anymore. People don't see the value in gathering with the church because I've got my phone. I've got everything I could want in it. I've got the Bible in this. I've got Matt Chandler. I've got Matt Chandler. Uh, I got Doug Dameron videos on my phone. I can do all these different things. And, and you know what? It doesn't even matter. I don't have to go and necessarily be with people anymore. And, and I think when we're faced with a decision, there's so many things vying for our attention, especially in Colorado, right? I can ski, I can hike, I can snowmobile, I can horse ride, I can do all these things. And plus, guys, I work all week long. I only get two days off. I don't want to give up half my day going to church. I'll just watch the sermon on Tuesday when I take my kids to soccer practice. But here, here, here's one of the challenges I, I want us to, to, to focus on here. When, when we find ourselves in, in that place where we begin to value things differently and it pulls us away from gathering with God's people, I, I don't know that we've necessarily loved the wrong things. I just think we've loved them in the wrong order, as we've said before. I want you to notice what Paul says here. Paul is saying that making the decision to go to church is where we stake our claim. It's where we go all in. Notice this. Gathering as a church puts God first and makes everything else take a back seat. Like when, when you make that decision, doesn't it seem so simple? Well, we're just talking about church, right? It's like Jim Moore, playoffs <laughs> or Albert Iverson, practice? We're talking about practice, right? Church? Paul says, yeah, we're, we're talking about church. We're talking about gathering together as God's people. Something that may seem insignificant, but that has a massive, huge impact on your spiritual life and how you actually live out your faith. And so Paul is pushing us here. Notice what he's saying. He's saying, I appeal to you. I urge you because of God's mercy for you, because of what God did for you, give him the sacrifice of your time. Be a living sacrifice. Later in the book of Romans, he'll talk about serving and all these different things. But right here, he's talking about the corporate gathering for spiritual worship as a sacrifice. Now, isn't that interesting? He's literally saying when you gather together as God's people, you are becoming a living sacrifice together to God. Sacrifice is another weird word that we don't love. It points back to the Old Testament. If you guys have read your Old Testaments lately or spent time in the book of Exodus, you know that God gave the law to his people, the children of Israel, and in that law that they were told how to offer sacrifices to God And the idea was that because of sin and brokenness in the world, the sacrifice was the place where people came face to face with the depravity and the danger and the ugliness of sin. 
And so when, when you, as a Jewish man, a Jewish woman, Jewish family, would go to the temple that one time a year on the Day of Atonement to bring your sacrificial lamb or, or, or pigeon or whatever it might be, there was this realization that I am, because of sin in my life, something has to pay the cost. And so they would give this lamb to the, brought to the altar of the priest, and that lamb would lose its life. And it would be the seriousness, right, where they would realize, like, man, God is telling me that sin is ugly and and broken. And so once a year, they would go do this as a reminder, and it would be this picture of forgiveness for their sin. Now, we know, looking back through the lens of the Bible, that that was a a picture of the foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us. Praise God. It's amazing. But it was a reminder for the, the people in the Old Testament time to see the seriousness of sin. And so notice this, Paul is playing on his words. He's saying that when we go to gather with God's people together as the church, we're presenting our lives as a sacrifice to God. It's pleasing to God. When we go to church, we're being reminded of the brokenness of sin. We're being reminded of the goodness of God's grace. We're being reminded of the importance of being together in God's, with God's people. And that's why it is so foundational for you and for me. The book of Romans is really interesting. The, 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 the letter that Paul writes, he writes in about 57 AD, and he's writing this letter to house churches in Rome. And these house churches are filled with Jews. Somebody say Jews. And Greeks. Somebody say Greeks. So the, 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 the Greek people and the Jewish people, they didn't love each other. They weren't best of friends. The Jewish people were pretty arrogant. They said, we're God's people. Jesus came from us. We had the law. God wrote the Bible through our people. And so, you know, at least the Old Testament through our people. And so we are supremely more important than you are. The Greeks were pagans. The Greeks, they worshiped a bunch of gods, trying to get them to do whatever they wanted them to do. But really, the Greeks lived wild lives. They had crazy relationships. They would do all kinds of really sick things that we can't talk about because there's kids in the room. And these two groups just didn't get along. It's like Thanksgiving at your house, right? Like when your crazy uncle comes over and you're like, does he really got to come again, mom? Yeah, he's, he's still part of our family, right? And so imagine, these, these are house churches, right? We don't know how big they are, 10, 15, 20, 50 people maybe. And, and you're meeting in, in, in Ron's living room and there's a stinky dude on one couch and a guy that thinks he's, really clean on the other, and they just aren't getting along. And so Paul is writing this letter. God is using Paul to write this letter and say, hey, you guys, Greeks and Jews who don't like each other, guess what? You are one body. Y'all are one. Somebody say, y'all are one. Somebody say, we are one. This is the picture, right, that we are, are one. It doesn't matter if we don't look alike, if we don't like each other, if we think that the other person roots for the wrong team, which I think most of you do. Like most of you do. But th- this is this idea that God is saying that we are committing to do something better. And we're sacrificing our time. Just like if you want to eat healthy life, st- eat healthy, you have to sacrifice creamy fettuccine Alfredo. God, so good. If you want to sacrifice and get healthy, you actually have to get up and go to the gym. And if you want to grow in your faith, you have to sacrifice your Sunday mornings to gather together with God's people. This is what Paul's saying. This is what God is trying to tell us. And isn't it funny how God's word is just as relevant 2,000 years later? 
as it was when it was written. Notice again, verse two, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so Paul is going to talk about how this works then. Okay, so what does gathering together with the church do? Paul says that it's how we fight against the, being conformed to the world, and it's how we have our minds renewed and transformed. He says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what, what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Notice what Paul says here. He's saying that gathering around God's word shapes how we see ourselves in the world. It's, it's when you gather together around God's word that the world, that yourself, that your life, that the things around you are shaped. See, the reality is all of us, we, we've, we've got just things coming at us left and right all day long. And we've talked before about that. How many advertisements you see every day, right? How many times we touch our phones, like 5,000 times a day. All, all these different things, the TV shows you watch, the, the commercials that are on, it doesn't matter. All of them are, are, are coming at us. And there, there's this reality that we are conformed by the things we spend time around. It's like, the t- it's like the commercial said years ago, you are what you eat, right? Remember the people were walking around with donuts on this, you know? Like you are what you eat and you are what you let speak to you. And so the world wants to conform you. The idea of being conformed is just like copying the pattern. We, we, are, we are copying the world's behavior. And here's what happens. Paul is saying that when you don't gather with God's people and have God's word open and read and taught to you, when you don't gather with God's people and sing the songs that stir up your heart and your emotions and your affections for Jesus, then what happens is you begin to listen to the wrong story. See, God is telling us a story. And that story is that God is good and that God loves you so much, he sent his son here for you. And that as you choose to follow him, you can experience new life and walk in beauty and richness and fullness. But the story the world wants to tell you is that you don't need any of that. What the world wants to tell you is that all you need is you. The the, the culture around us is trying to tell you that you should just follow the pattern that the only person that is king in your life is you. That the greatest good that you can have is you. And what feels good and what tastes good, whatever you think about yourself must be true. And it leads us to buying into the wrong story. It's like, it's like that voicemail you get. You guys know that voicemail? It says, hey, this is Bill from the tax refund office. And I'm pleased to inform you that you have a $10,000 tax credit. I just need your social security number and your bank account number. <laughs> and you're like, man, this is a good day. You know, it's like the facts from the king in Nigeria, right? We've talked about that before, right? That's always a good day. Like, it's always too good to be true. And what the world wants to say is too good to be true because it's the wrong story and it always leads to the right place. But what Paul is saying here is that the way we fight against the wrong story is having our minds transformed. He says, do not be conformed, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The word for transformed is metamorpho. It's this idea of metamorphosis, right? You guys all know about the butterfly. Did you know about the ladybug? Check this out, this picture. It's kind of gross. So ladybugs, aren't they cute? Like when they walk on your shoe or whatever, you know, and you're looking at them. Ladybugs are nasty. Have you seen, look at these pictures. Like, so it's eggs, which turn into this nasty looking black larva guy, which turns into this weird, like yellow, they call it a yellow pupa. Somebody say pupa. 
guys are nasty. <laughs> and then it turns into this cute little ladybug. The Bible talks about us being transformed, being made something different. Jesus was transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. We see that in the Gospels, where they got, the disciples got to see the outward glory of Jesus. He was shining. The, the Bible talks about how you and I, when we put our faith in Jesus, that we become believers, that we are made into a new creation. And that again, that's plural. That's not you. We are made new in the book of 2 Corinthians. We are made new. It's y'all are made new. See, the world is like, hey, you do your thing and you do your thing, but God is like, we do our thing together. We are the church of God. And so this idea that we are being transformed by the renewing of our mind. So, so how does that work together? The renewing of our mind. Because you could say, okay, Drew, okay, hold on, time out, push pause. Look, I, I can read the Bible at home. I can listen to podcasts on my drive. I can listen to Caleb at work all day long. Why do I need to be here to hear God's word taught? And I get it. We should be in our Bibles. We talked about that last week, right? Spending time meditating on the word of God every single day. It's huge. But there is a reason that we are called to spring together as the church. We are called together to open God's word together as the church. It's because there is something beautiful and special when God's word is preached and God's word is taught and God's word is revealed to us. I know a bunch of sports fans in the room here. One thing that sports fans are really good at is standing around, especially back before we had Wikipedia in our pockets. You guys remember this? We'd stand around the water cooler at work and we'd try to remember dates and facts and you'd always get them wrong, right? You're like, how many home runs was it Mark McGuire hit in 1993? You're like, well, I think he hit 70. What year was that, 1996? No, it was like 2008, right? And then you look it up and you're like, oh, no, no, it was 70 home runs in 1998. But before we had phones, you just guessed, right? Like, what year was that? Oh, it was like 1903, you know, whatever. And, and we needed something to help us to get the facts right. It's sort of what we do at church. I mean, the reality is, like, you, you and I, we sit down and we, we, we read our Bibles and we, we have this quiet time with God and there's going to be a verse we don't understand. And so what do we do? Do we take time to go pull out a commentary? Do we go listen to what David Guzik has to say about it? No, we just kind of go right over it, don't we? How many times have you read a verse that you've read a hundred times and you get something new from it, right? The beauty of God's word is you could read the book of Matthew every month, your entire life, and you're going to get something new every single time. So being in God's word is important, but gathering around God's word where somebody opens it and teaches it, The Holy Spirit uses that to bring so much beauty out of it, to bring so much life out of it, to renew our minds, to help us to see that God's way for us is good and is pure and is right and is true, and the the world is not. Now, I'm not telling you that when I stand up here or Mitch or Darren or Ron or Pat or any of the guys, Pete, stand up here and they teach, it's not that it's our word that's that's truth. It's, It's God's word. God's just using us. And so what God wants to do, though, is the church is men, women, teachers who give their lives over to opening God's word and trying to understand it, spending time studying it so that way they can teach it 
helps us to be able to digest it and to understand it and to recognize it. And when this happens, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit does something beautiful. John 15, or 16, 13 says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. You can't always understand something when you just read over it. Even when you meditate on it, it's good, but there's going to be things you miss. But when we stand up here and hear the word of God taught and preached, something beautiful happens. The Holy Spirit takes that, helps us decipher it and filter it, and it renews us. And it's that that Paul says transforms you from the inside out. Isn't that beautiful? It's not about, it's not all on you. God doesn't say, okay, here you go. Take this. Good luck. Instead, he says, take this, bring it inside the gathering of God's people and have God bring this beautiful truth to your ears. And and notice, as we do this, as we open God's word together, as we sing these songs, Paul says in verse two again, that we may discern, read this with me, we may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's the church coming together. Are we going to nail it every time? Are we going to perfectly every time? Is the, the guy standing on the stage going to perfectly give you the word every time? No, but the Holy Spirit will use that in a beautiful way to bless you and to bring you deeper into the richer relationship with Jesus. This week, I had a chance to go to Guatemala for a few days and spend some time with Oscar. Here's me with the crew. Uh, this was yesterday morning and had a chance to invest in their leaders. Uh, Oscar's taking the picture, but this is their core group of leaders, the, the, the leaders of the men's women's ministry, the women's ministry, the soup kitchen, all the different uh, clinics and all that kind of stuff, and had a chance to just talk with them about building rhythms into our lives and, and, uh, uh, and, and how that looks in our prayer life. And, and what was so cool is when I got out of the van, I hadn't seen these people in two years. When I got out of the van, every one of them came up and just gave me a big old Pat Barnes bear hug, Right? You know, just one of those big old, I love you. You know, they, they didn't give me the kiss on the lips that Pat gives you, but they, they gave me the, the, the big bear hug. And it's just what the church does in addition to opening God's word and stirring up our hearts with the song is the church is the place where you can come and you can be loved. The church is a place where you can walk in and you should get a hug. And, and let me gently say this to you guys. If you walk in on a Sunday and you see somebody you don't know, it will be a heartbreaker for that person to come here and sit down and then leave without having somebody come up and say hello. Somebody come up and ask them how they're doing. Somebody come up and, now I don't want all of you to go, right? Like we don't need 150 people going, but like have it on your heart. Find somebody you don't know. Maybe you've seen them sitting across the aisle and you, aren't, you haven't met yet. Like the church is the place where we should get a dap and a hug and a hand pound because this is the place where God's people come together and gather and are encouraged. So I want you to see something. See, the reason that I think Paul tells us that it's so important that we give ourselves over to God as this living sacrifice and we gather together as the church on Sunday mornings is because it's where we fight against the idea that we need to be in control. See, there's something that happens that's going on inside of us. And I know it's true about me and I'm gonna guess that it's true about you. And that's that there is this desire for control. Now, control is, is, is not a bad thing. But ultimately, inside of us, there is this desire that says that I need to control everything around us because I need to make sure that I'm getting what I deserve. And so we control our schedules. We control our relationships. We control the way we spend our money. 
and we think I need to control my time. And, and so what happens is we end up fighting against this, this, this idea of control, and it ends up taking us to this place where, where you know, it's a good desire. We want to be fruitful. We want to have lives that matter. We want to have lives that make a difference. But our desire for control ends up making ourselves turn inward, and we get selfish, even when we try to do things on the outside. I, I'm what they would call a geriatric millennial. It's a weird term because I don't feel that old. But, you know, if you're born on the early side of the millennial generation, you're what they call a geriatric millennial. And what's interesting is millennials, any millennials in this room? A few of you? Some of you know. Some of you are still confused, so they keep changing. It says this. It says about, notice what it's about millennials. It says this, that millennials are the most socially conscious, globally minded, justice-oriented generation in recent memory. But we're also the most mentally ill, chronically unhappy. We're a generation of people doing exactly what we want with our lives, yet completely overwhelmed, utterly exhausted, and chronically anxious. It's a good desire to have control. It's just out of order. When you come to church on a Sunday, you're giving God control. Where It's where we stand firm against this desire that we need to be in control. It's this desire that we have that says that I need to be the king. When we come on a Sunday morning and we give living, we're a living sacrifice. We're all together as one, giving ourselves to God, saying, God, here's my time. God does something beautiful inside of us because what happens is after you live long enough in this chronic desire for control and you realize you can't have it, so often what happens is we end up settling. And I want to say in this room, I think some of you probably feel like in life you've felt like you've settled. And when you settle, you go to half speed. You get half-hearted. You start doing things with half the passion. And it ends up, you end up getting distracted. And that's a truly dangerous place to be with your faith. I wanna, I'm going to wrap up with a, kind of a verse from the book of Revelation. Jesus is using the pen of John to write to these churches in Asia Minor. And he writes to his church in Laodicea. And I want you to notice what he says about being half-hearted. He says this. He, he, he writes to this group of Christians. who They kind of had everything they wanted. They were, lived in a wealthy place. They said they loved Jesus. They said they cared about the church. They said they cared about people, but they just really didn't live it. And so Jesus uses John to say something pretty intense. Jesus says this, I know your works, and you are neither hot nor, you are neither cold nor hot. Jesus said, would that you were, e- I would love for you, Jesus, what Jesus is saying here, that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. That was appropriate. <laughs> Jesus is saying that, guys, when we live half-hearted, when we live lukewarm, when we're not hot or cold, we're kind of indifferent and we're kind of in the middle, we miss all of the beauty and the blessings that God has for us because we are not committed and we miss how God wants to move in our lives to grow in our faith and help us to be the people he created us to be. Last night, some of you guys might've been watching the games, the 49ers Packers game came down to the end and I was reminded of, as a kid, anytime we played backyard football, we always wanted to be Joe Montana and Jerry Rice. Jerry Rice was the man. 
And any wide receiver fan knows that Jerry Rice was the greatest wide receiver in history. Anybody disagree? Greatest, he's the GOAT for sure. What was interesting, some of you are shaking your heads. You guys are just wrong. What was interesting about Jerry Rice is the reason Jerry Rice was so good, though, is his, you guys, have you guys ever heard about his off-season workout routine? His off-season workout routine was insane. So six days a week of his off-season workouts, he would run this hill, and he would bring other NFL players, and they would run it with him, and they would all throw up. I mean, it was so intense. He would run this hill. It was a five-mile hill. So he'd run this five-mile hill in California, and then he would run 10 40-meter sprints up the steepest part. 10, 40 meter sprints. After running a five mile hill already, he did that six days a week. You wanna know why he was great? Because he worked so hard in the off season to get ready. Because he took care of his body. Because he was healthy. And I think there's a reality here for us guys as we think about our faith and spiritual health. And the reality is if, if we wanna be the people that, that God calls us to be, we have to prepare ourselves. We have to commit. You don't, you don't think Jerry Rice didn't want to get up six days a week and go on that run? I'm sure he didn't. But because he did, it led him to this beautiful place of health. And I think one of the things that God wants us to see is that he wants us to commit to, to get serious and go all in with our spiritual health. Stop pulling things away and thinking that we can do it half-heartedly. Stop thinking that we can be some lone wolf believer on our own, but to commit. And so I think the challenge he's giving us today is to commit to being part of gathering with the church. So I want to close you with just four quick takeaways. The first one is this, is just make the mental commitment to gathering weekly, to gathering together with your church. I heard a pastor once say that if you're home and healthy, then make that commitment. If you're not healthy, stay home, please, right? But if you're home and healthy, commit to gathering weekly at the church. Second thing is this. It's to posture yourself for worship. One of the things that I know that guys aren't the best at is is engaging in worship at church. I know sometimes we do the little hands in our pocket thing, right? Or we, we sing real low, can't hear us. Guys, fellas, when you sing, you are more handsome to your wife than you've ever been before. So sing. You want your wife to look at you with that glean in her eye again? It's probably because you haven't been singing at church. <laughs> Fellas, I want, I want you guys to sing. Who cares? Nobody's looking at you anyways. You guys, everybody thinks somebody's looking. Nobody's looking. Nobody cares. Everybody else is too worried that somebody's looking at them, right? <laughs> so just look at the words on the screen. Look at the singers and sing. None of you have good voices anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Third, engage emotionally. It is okay to put a hand in the air. It's even okay to put two hands in the air, right? Now, if you want to do the little, that's fine too. But I just engage emotionally. And fourth, guys, it's it's this. Listen to the message intently. Take notes. Pull out your phone. Highlight in your Bible. Star. Write stuff down. That way you go back. That way the Holy Spirit can remind you. Oh, man, remember last week? I mean, some of the best notes I've ever found, I stumbled upon like a year later and I'm reading them again and I'm going, man, that was, that was so good. That was, that was beautiful. I think when we do this, we, we are committing mentally to living out this commitment to gather together as the church. I want to end with a quote. 
as I invite the band back on stage. I, want you, I love this quote by Leonard Ravenhill. He talked about why Jesus came, and he says this. He says, Jesus didn't come into the world to make bad men good. He came into the world to make dead men live. You don't come to the church so you can just get a little better. Don't come to church so you can get a little smarter. Don't come to church so you can get a little better at remembering a Bible verse. Come to church so you can be reminded that God has made you alive. So what are you going to commit to this year? Commit to growing in your faith because you'll be so glad you did. Would you pray with me?